Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We need now to work double hard to overturn. On the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. It's called the Phillips Curve. The government is too big. It's too intrusive. It restricts what we can do. How does he look within giving the grim data of the day? Government budgets don't work like household budgets. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we've all heard of shadow banks, but do we understand exactly what they are? I mean, they sound pretty bad, don't they? Shadow implies shady deals, and they were to shoulder most of the blame for the 2008 financial crisis. But they must be doing some good, surely. Otherwise, regulators would never allow them to do business. Would they? Instead, well, they work outside most banking regulation. So does that make them the wild west of the finance sector? That's this week on the Debanking Economics Podcast. So shadow banking is quite a big thing. It was particularly big up to the 2008 financial crisis, which most would agree was caused really because of shadow banking. But since then, it's grown in size even more. By 2016, it was worth around the world over $100 trillion. So what are they? What are they doing? Are they distorting the banking sector or are they a necessary force for good or evil? Do they perhaps keep banks honest, for example? Is that even possible? Uh, So, Steve, I mean, maybe we should start with the real basics here because it's a term that is used a great deal. What exactly is a shadow bank? Fundamentally, it's it's an institution involved in finance that doesn't have an account at the central bank. That's that's in a simple nutshell, pragmatic definition. Mm. That's what they are. Uh, In in practice, they uh, tend to be several, several sorts of companies. There's ones which spread the risk of episodic events in human life. So the insurance companies on the one hand, to some extent the pension companies on another. Uh, then you've got others which are involved in underwriting, share purchases, etc., etc. They're the ones we normally think of when we talk about shadow banking. That's the Morgan Stanleys and the Goldman Sachs and so on. And their, their business is predominantly uh, consulting with other, other firms to advise on how to undertake mergers, mergers and acquisitions, how to move in different markets and so on. But they also do some lending. But I think, I think the main thing the shadow banks are, in that with where the word shadow in Plato's caves come to mind, you see the shadows, you're not actually seeing the players. And I think this, the, mm. the, the groups that are casting the shadow of shadow banks are the actual banks. Right. Okay, we'll explore that a bit more. There, there is, a, by the way, a move afoot to try and get rid of the term uh, shadow banking because it, you know, it's got connotations of uh, two thousand and eight, etc. Uh, and they want to use the term market-based finance. Steve, <laughs> how wanky is more that? Bull, more bullfit, <laughs> more bullfit. That's what I, yeah, crazy. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you think about why, why did shadow banking evolve? The main reason is that you had banks uh, which could not undertake. Uh, investments in other other potentially lucrative businesses because of the fiduciary limits and rules on what a bank can actually do uh, on its on the asset side. 
So fundamentally can have reserves which are created by government spending, uh, loans which it creates by private lending, and bonds which it buys off the government. Uh, so those are the three sort of things, and shares aren't mentioned there. But if you spin off a company and you call it a shadow bank, then that shadow bank, you can give it a loan uh, and say, okay, you can now go and use the money I've lent you to go and gamble on asset markets. And that's fundamentally what they've done, a combination no. of gambling on asset markets plus trying to game things like the American housing market in 2007. So you're saying the shadow banks very often are funded by, well, the money's got to come from somewhere, I guess. They are coming from banks. So banks are lending to the shadow banks because they can't, because banks can create money that shadow banks can't. And then the shadow banks are using that money that has been created by that loan from a bank to engage in more risky practices that, by legislation, banks are not able to undertake. Is that what we're saying? So, in other words, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I I don't know that the uh, that the shareholders of merchant banks are the banks themselves today. But I'm this is something where a historian or an accountant could actually give a better record than I can. But I imagine if you go back in time, you'll find that the reason they were created uh, was to get around the limitations on the act, on the asset uh, speculation side of of, not, of real banks. Um, and and we're not all amazed that the banks themselves said we have to set something up so we can exploit this pot of pot of uh, money we can see over there. Uh, because to quote uh, the New Zealand. The, West Australian Premier, when talking about one of Australia's great Ponzi schemers, he said he'd hate to, betra- to stand between uh, Laurie Garrett, I think it was, to stand between Laurie Garrett and a bucket of money. Uh, so I, I mm. think the, the, the regulatory constraints on what banks can do is what led to the formation of shadow banks. Right. And, you know, it's grown bigger and bigger, although they've been around for a long time, haven't they? Because bu- would a building society be classified as a, well, the, as a shadow bank? Because building societies are... Yeah, this, the building societies are a very interesting example because they are literally the textbook idea of how lending occurs. You put your money in a building society. You do not have withdrawal account, okay? If you want to withdraw your money, you've got to, you know, sign a form and do it in 30 days. What is happening with your money? It is being lent out to other people in the same building society who are building a house with it. And when they've gone through the whole cost of doing it mm. and repaid a loan, then your money might be recompensed and you can then take it out. But that's that's classic peer-to-peer lending. And that's, uh, you know, and because building societies dominated uh, the UK housing market until 1982, uh, that's one reason why private debt remained so low in the UK. Uh, historically, it never exceeded 73% of GDP in data going right back to 1880. Uh, but as of 1982, when Maggie deregulated the mortgage market and let banks lend into that market, then you had institutions which, which actually can create money, funding purchases of housing, and that caused the bubble. So, you know, the, uh, the building societies are a form of shadow bank I'd like to continue see continuing. You might call them community banks rather than shadow banks. But the shadow bank world, I think, deserves the opprobrium that Keynes had once when he said, when the investment actions of a, of a country are based on the outcomes of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. Well, I think merchant banks have been a positive disincentive to good uh, behaviours and, and good opportunities in capitalism. And I wouldn't be at all sorry to see them go. Of course, they won't. They'll be around to kingdom come. Doesn't the problem occur when you're, the, the money which is being put into a shadow bank is, is fundamentally a loan? So if I've got some money and I put it in, I go to a building society and say, look, you know, all I've got is I've got £10,000. I want to buy a house. Give me a loan. 
But if I go along to uh, another, that, that's all fine. You know, that mm-hmm. all seems above board and, and legitimate. But if I go to another institution and say, look, I've borrowed a million pounds to invest in shares uh, I, I, and however else you can make this million pounds grow. By the way, I've only got 10,000 in my bank, but I've borrowed a million. Isn't that part of the problem? I mean, and, and isn't that easily regulated against? Definitely. I mean, that's what, if you look at the level of margin debt, for example, that's a classic case mm. of shadow banking activity. And people you know, invest in, in shares and they say, oh, would you like to do it with, uh, uh, with uh, you know, margin lending? Oh, what's margin lending? Oh, it's simple. You put down half a million. We give you a loan of half a million. And with that half a million, with a total million, you can go and buy a million dollars worth of shares. And if the shares increase in value by 10%, your profit is not 100,000 on a million, it's 100,000 on 500,000, you've made a 20% gain. Isn't that great? Works well until the stock market crashes. Yeah, but where's that shadow? In that instance, it's slightly different to what I was talking about, so we'll go back to that. But in that instance, where you go to a shadow bank and they say, I've got half a million, they say, well, we'll give you a half a million as well as a loan. Mm. Where if where they're getting, if they can't if they can't create money, the same as a, a yeah, you know, as, as a bank that's, yeah. how, how do they create that half a million? They've got, well, first of all, they had seed capital decades ago. That's always an important starting point. They've bought into the share market. They've bought into bonds. They've got revenue coming out of each of those. And they can also liquidate shares to make a loan to an individual if they expect loan rates to be higher than the rate of growth of the stock market over time. So um, the, the money has to be given to them. They can't create it on their own. But that, rather than making them a better behaving bank, has actually made them worse behaving banks than the main banks uh, because they they use that, that, that power uh, to cause... You know, speculative bubbles on stock markets. And that's, I, I don't think there are many people left who think that speculative bubbles are a good idea after the experiences of the last yeah. 40 years. I mean, it keeps on going on, doesn't it? But I mean, but they have to have that half million. I mean, it would be hard to track, wouldn't it? Because the money is moving all the time. Share prices are moving all the time. The value of the assets that they hold, obviously, are, are changing all the time. But the, the margin call issue is when they have lent that half a million to that guy based on the share values that have, for example, halved in price since, and that's where they run into trouble. Yeah, and that's what we saw during the Great Depression as well. Uh, margin lending back in the Great Depression used to be not 50%, but 90%. So you could put down $100,000 and buy a million dollars worth of shares. But if the shares went up by 10%, you made a 100% profit. If they went down by 10%, you're bankrupt. You wiped out all your equity in that position. And that's where the margin call comes in. But the stockbrokers according to the contract of the loans they signed with, with these speculators, are entitled to take any asset you've got to meet your debts to them. So if you're, let's say, if you had like a 20% fall in the market, you would go from having, say, 110000 to 90000 900000 that's after your previous gain, and your portfolio now has none of your money in it. So the, the um, brokerage can ring up and say, you've got to give us $100,000. We don't care how you do it. You've got to, if you have to sell your car, go and sell your car. But you've got to liquidate, you've got to pay it now. Mm. Now, that's what led to the severity of the downturn in 1930. Margin debt went from being 13% of GDP to one to half of 1% between this stock market crash in 1929 and the bottom of the depression in 1933. Right. So my point was not about how uh, you get margin calls because those uh, those shadow banks have basically said, yes, we can add to what you're putting into the money. My, my point was relating to the money that you're putting in in the first place. Now, there's a difference between me saying, oh, look, I've got 10, I've saved hard. I've got £10,000 sitting in my bank account versus 
oh, look, I've got half a million because I've just got this loan from my bank. So it's money that the bank has created that is being put into these shadow banks, which gets to the point, you know, that could be me or it could be the bank that's created that money for itself and it's just happened to be using me as an intermediary. There's no way of knowing, is there, that, you know, how in the... Uh, the sordid world of banking, how money moves around. But if it's if it's borrowed money or created money that's finding itself in the shadow banking sector, then that just expands the shadow banking sector even more, doesn't it? And that is a long way from those building, you know, those nice, friendly local building societies that were only lending out money that they'd received. Yeah, a very huge difference. And I think this is one reason, as I said, that's the thing is why the banks formed uh, shadow banks in the first place. Uh, but it's but mm. it's also this whole idea that they can borrow themselves from banks. So the borrowing from the banks itself creates money, which of course turns up in the financial sector. And what we have is a, is a maelstrom of financial speculation, uh, but very little investment. So this is one of these cases, yet again, where letting the market rip has failed. And fundamentally, a banking license uh, is a license to create money, but not a license to rip money off. But the latter is what's actually happened over as the power, power structure between corporations and uh, and governments have shifted so strongly in favour of particularly financial corporations. So how do you change that happening then? If you if you were so is there anything to there's, there's nothing to stop a, a bank with a banking license saying well we are going to invest in in the share market because we've got money and we need to maximize the return. There's nothing to stop them doing that. Is I mean, if they've got money sitting, if they've got money sitting in reserve, got money sitting in reserve. So I've put money into the bank. It's gone into the bank. They do face rules saying they they can they only do. invest in in, in low risk government securities, um, some low risk corporate mm. security. The rating has to be high enough, um, and bonds, and that's what they do. So on the asset side of banks, it's actually quite boring. You want interesting stuff. You go across to the Goldman Sachs of the world, right? Okay, which is which are shadow banks in effect. Yeah, that's the shadow banks are where you'll have a complicated portfolio of shares and speculative positions and so on. The, cent- the, pr- the private banks aren't allowed to do that. Uh, they've got strong limitations on what they can have as assets and what they can do. And you can understand them. why. I understand why they'd have that limitation because you don't want those banks to all of a sudden collapse and people who've got money in those banks lose out as a result of it. But couldn't you actually, to avoid all of this shadow banking nonsense happening, couldn't you say, well, okay, you can invest in shares, but you've got to allow a, you know, a certain amount of leeway. We've got to allow 50%. You know, let's assume that the share market never falls by 50%. So uh, you know, will you get a better return by investing in shares than you would in bonds if, if maybe 50% is a bit high, but you, but you set limits? So that there's, uh, or you have to put money to one side to ensure that you can cover it should should things turn bad. Yeah, and and that's the sort of stuff we should be doing. But that takes uh, politicians who are aware of the the actual power balance of power lies with them and not with the um, uh, the the, comp- the the shadow banks. So the shadow banks uh, it'd be, again an expansion of the, the power of the financial sector. And my favourite instance of that was. John Paulson, was it John or Paulson or Hank Paulson, who was treasurer of the secretary during the financial crisis. And he was an ex-Goldman mm. Sachs executive. And he got a call, a call from one of his Goldman Sachs colleagues saying, you've got to do something. If you don't do it soon, we're going to go bankrupt. And he, Hank Paulson, this is in his book, um, uh, the uh, I've forgotten the actual title of the book, but about the financial crisis, uh, about, uh, some, something on the brink, on the brink. Um, he asks his ex-colleague from Goldman Sachs, how long have you got? And the answer was, and I quote, about three hours. 
Now, what's going on? Yeah. What's going on there is, of course, this plunging stock market. Uh, stock market shares are an asset of the shadow banking sector. They're required to have positive equity, not, not quite as strictly as as uh, actual banks are, but they still have to have positive equity. Uh, if their assets fall in value compared to their liabilities, they're bankrupt. Now, the with, with because um, shadow banks can buy shares and so on, then their asset side is subject to that volatility. But because banks can't, their assets aren't as volatile. In a nutshell, then what we're saying is the, the regulations that have been imposed on on mainstream banks, on on, on uh, banks that have got deposits in the uh, in in the central bank, those regulations have just shifted all this risky behaviour to the to, to the shadow banking sector. And it seems like nobody knows how to regulate it, or indeed whether they do need to regulate. I mean, I mean, is there an argument that maybe shadow banks do some good? Now, don't answer that, because actually, what we'll do is we'll come back in just a, we'll come back in just a second, and, and we'll explore that. I'll give you a chance to think about that, Steve. Are there actually any good factors about shadow banks apart from obviously those friendly local building societies, which we all clearly love? Uh, we'll look at that next on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen, and I'm Phil Dobby. See you in a second. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, I asked the question, uh, is there any good done by shadow banks beyond uh, the work of, of building society? I mean, I mean, I know one of the arguments given is that, you know, they are adding extra competition to the banking sector. You know, if there's more people providing services, whatever those services might be, uh, then that is surely good because there will be innovation in, in those services. There will be uh, better services for consumers, perhaps lower prices for consumers. Uh, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, well, I think there's, if you think of the activities that I don't like them doing, it's financing share buybacks, it's um, doing speculation of their own account on the stock market and so on. But one thing in merchant banking is inherently more innovative than normal banking simply because of the controls on what you can do. Uh, as a banker uh, in terms of what assets you can buy and so on. But because those controls don't apply to the shadow banking world, uh, that leaves a lot of people who would otherwise work in banks and be working out how to give loans to corporations with good new ideas. They go across to merchant banks and the merchant banks there take an equity stake uh, and provide the money in, in that sense. So there, there, is, mm. there is a way in which they're more likely to do innovative investment. But the trouble is they're as socially irresponsible as any other uh, element of the financial sector, and there's no guarantee that the things that they fund 
are going to be what society needs in a decade's time. It might well be what some entrepreneur needs in the next six months, but it's not what society needs overall. No, but you're never going to be able to regulate against that. And and also, it's a judgment call anyway, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, I mean, who's to, you could see yeah. similarly say, well, you know, they've they've invested in things that could have been really good in 10 years' time, but they failed because they were badly managed, for example. Yeah. You know, I mean, where do you draw the line? Yeah, yeah. And so they, they have... Um, you know, massively expanded the innovative side of the financial sector, but that innovation hasn't turned up in them uh, enabling uh, you know a large range of new manufacturing products. I mean, there are some cases. You know, Tesla, for example, is a company that got its start through a, a shadow bank in Boston in terms of funding it to go from the roadster to production level. I think the the, the first one was the Model Three. Um, so they do do some stuff that banks would turn down because it's uh, they banks if they're going to make a loan they've got to secure it against an asset, uh, whereas with the shadow banking sector they can secure it against an idea, and that is exposes them to more risk, but it also means they can do potentially can do more innovation. But uh, as I've said, I'm pretty sceptical about the sort of innovation they've done. So is that right? A bank, because I know if you go to a bank, you know, and you, you want to get a loan, the first thing they'll ask is, have you got a house? You know, they're, they're, they're desperate mm. to find something that they can nab back off you if it all goes wrong. Yeah. They have to do mm. that by law, or is that just the way they, that, that they operate? It's how they operate. Um, so, mm-hmm. like in terms of a mortgage, a mortgage has to have a lien against a property, uh, but they can also assess whether you're capable of taking out the mortgage by looking at your income and expenditure over time. If they do that intelligently, then they're going to match you with an asset you can actually afford. But if they're caught up in the bonus side of the world, and this is where we get the catastrophes we've seen in recent decades, if they get a bonus for the loans they issue, they're willing to issue those loans even if you don't pass due diligence because the high level of loans means the high level of of uh, 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 not royalties, but uh, bonuses to the people writing those loans. So there's a, a really corrupt uh, mindset that's automatically part of the uh, financial system that encourages wasteful speculation and not the useful sort of speculation that Keynes was hoping. Now, yeah, well, just imagine I've got a, you know an absolute future-proof business idea. Uh, and I just need my. I've I have mm. discovered, for example, in my spare time, uh, the answer to perpetual energy, and uh, you know, it's, oh, good. it's going okay. to so just I just ch- chanced upon it. Uh, just uh, it was. I was that, that, well, that, let's put a put a let's put a pint of beer on the handlebars of Phil Darby's <laughs> motorbike, and it goes on indefinitely. Yeah, that sort of thing. I was I was cooking actually. I mean, oh, a mix okay, of ingredients. Okay. I got the recipe wrong, and it, I don't know how it happened, but I discovered perpetual motion. It's, it's uh, you need uh, you just you go. okay. ingredients. So, so you're go, off to market. So go yep. to so I, go, I need to well I need to scale it up. Obviously, to uh, you know, because um, you need lots. Because the thing about perpetual energy is you need lots of it. Uh, so you could argue you need one of this device, but it's very expensive anyway. So I go to my bank and say, "Look, I've discovered perpetual energy," uh, and and they go, "Okay, but you're going to need to put your house down as a uh, as a deposit." Uh, and I go, "I'm not. My wife's not going to be very happy about that. I don't know as I can do it. Is that the way it would work, or uh, or could a bank say, "Wow, perpetual energy? That sounds like I'm even to me." And I don't know much uh, working in this bank. That sounds to me like a, a money spinner. We're prepared to give you what you need based on the return you're going to give us. Can they actually physically do that if they wanted to? They, they can They can physically do it. But, but they don't. Uh, but because they, when you look at the history of entrepreneurs, I mean, I don't know the actual numbers, but I imagine eight out of every 10 entrepreneurs fails. Two go off to be marvelously successful. 
uh, but the other eight can fold, even with good ideas. So, and I've seen plenty of examples of good companies going under uh, with good ideas, but they fail to get the finance to keep on operating. One was an Australian company called Dolmycin that made the world's first truly portable, powerful laptop computer. And that failed because they couldn't get funding because uh, the banks weren't willing to mortgage the idea. They wanted to mortgage the property and their property wasn't worth enough to fund the, the concept. So in that sort of world, you do want to have uh, firms like uh, shadow banks, which are looking at both you know, lending to speculative businesses like that or getting them to go through an IPO and getting onto the stock market and raise the revenue through an IPO. So that's that's the worthwhile work that shadow banks do, that private banks uh, standard regulated right. banks can't. But you're saying they can, but they don't. Because I mean, if they if they could give me a, if they could give me a they right, they could right. they so could, why they would they create yeah. shadow banks themselves if they could do it themselves? Why that need to separate out? Well, they they they, they can't they can't organise an IPO. Okay, they can't tell somebody we're going to give you here's the money we're going to raise for you from an IPO. They can't do that. So the merchant banks are the ones that can, and that's why they shift. You know, so so much uh, activity goes through them these days. Uh, right. So that's a, failing, that's a failing of regulation of the banks. Well, then, yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you go back sort of 40 years, you'll find that one of the major businesses of banks was issuing what they call lines of credit. Now, mm. now they speak lines of cocaine, but let's go back to history. Uh, so <laughs> li- lines... So, Allegedly, hello banking, of course. Hello, banking friends. Um, so w- w- with the... I think those, those days, days are gone, actually, Steve. I suspect that huh? those days have gone. No, maybe not. Anyway, carry on. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> they... they um, used to offer what are called lines of credit. So a major corporation would line up 20 or 30 lenders and negotiate an aggregate line of credit of, say, a billion dollars. And then that meant that if they faced higher wage demands or higher energy demands, they could instantly meet the the costs by accessing mm. part of that line of credit they have. So it's like effectively like a credit card. Now, they've been virtually eliminated over the last 40 years because they weren't seen as profitable enough for the banks. So what has happened instead is major corporations now finance themselves in what's called the commercial paper market. So they will issue bills with a maturity date of 100 days or even less and give a face value of, say, $100 on the bill and pay, pay, and, and pay 102 to buy it back uh, at a future date. Uh, and that's become how these corporations have funded themselves. Right. Rather, but what you should have had because I because that, that line of credit is a liability to the bank that's not being acted on. So they've got to have that money aside, well, but they, that money's not working for them. They 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 can create that money, but the return wasn't as high as they liked. Um, mm. So I, I I think it was much better to regulate the banks and require them to provide that sort of finance because one of the essential roles of banking should be to provide working capital for corporations. But because they've got so caught up in funding housing scheme, the bubbles in the housing sector, uh, and also uh, the other merger and acquisition and style operations of the, the shadow banking system, we've lost that easy finance for major corporations, which means the corporation which should be robust are fragile when a crisis hits. And that happened to GM. I think they had weeks to go before they couldn't reach payroll because the commercial market, paper market collapsed. That was, I think, one of Lerman, um, Lerman Brothers had cornered that particular market. So the collapse in the, um, in the, in the, uh, uh, you know, the, the overall economy meant the, the collapse of the Lerman Brothers meant there was no market through which you could sell 
uh, short-term paper by corporations, which meant in a matter of weeks they'd run out of money, be unable to pay wages. That's why there was such a panic after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Let's get back to those, you know, our friendly local building society, which are, you know, obviously representative of all that's good in the world. You know, no one in the, uh, in the in the finance industry will end up in heaven except for the people in building society. I think that's the conclusion we've drawn today. But the logical thing to do if you were one of those building societies, I think this is what really led to, to you know, to to 2008 and the work of shadowy banks bringing down the uh, bringing down the you know the, the the economy if if you were a building society that could only loan out money that you in effect had that money you'd received in uh, you'd be looking at a way well how can we do more how can we loan out more more than we have which is why you started to get loans being parceled up and then sold as securities so those you know whoever it is who's issuing those mortgages would go and say, well, okay, here's, uh, these these people are going to be paying back. Um, you know, they've got a house. Uh, if it all goes to, you know, if it all goes to S, uh, there's there's a house you can call on. But fundamentally, these are loans that are going to be paid back over time. There's money in this. We'll parcel it all up and, uh, and we'll sell it on as security so that it could be bought by other institutions. I mean, that that is just, and you can understand why that would happen. If you can't loan out more money than you've got, you're going to look at doing stuff like that. The question is, should you be allowed to? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's no doubt that merchant banks have gone too far in what they do. Uh, and I would like to see them, effectively being banks for entrepreneurs, that would be, and, and banks that can both issue loans and take equity positions in entrepreneurial ventures. That's the, the sort of a res- a responsible uh, use of uh, of uh, shadow banking, but the negative mm. uh, is you know they've got caught up in, in uh, they, they do some IPOs, uh, but they do lots of mergers and acquisitions. They do lots of share buybacks and so on, and I see that as destructive. But if we had them doing the being the, the shadow banks being the banking sector for the entrepreneurs and the normal banking sector being the uh, banking sector for existing firms, so lines of credit and household purchases, uh, then we'd have a much more healthier financial system, which, of mm, course, we don't yeah. have. And they are, I guess, are offering competition to banks or doing stuff that banks wouldn't do. And they're not expanding the money supply in the process so because they can't issue loans. So is that, uh, is that a good thing? I mean, that means that we are not getting the money supply expanded in a way that the, uh, the central bank, for example, has very little ability to control. You know, like I, uh, I'm, you know, there are people. Or does it not matter? It, it does matter because uh, if you're giving merging banks the power to control money, be like giving your three-year-old kid the, the nuclear codes. Okay, <laughs> it's not a, not a good idea. Um, uh, and it, and the, the thing is, they can still behave in a wildless, wild west fashion elsewhere. But the one part of the wild west they can't be is banks creating money by making loans. And if we allow them to do that, then the bubble we saw in margin debt would be ridiculously small compared to the one that they would create. Um, so it's, it's incredibly important to restrain their tendency to speculate, but to have them regard themselves as being the engines of innovation in a capitalist well, that's society, it. So financial isn't that, engine, so in that which case, they're not. Right, okay. But it, but if they were, I mean, if we had shadow banks that were more innovative than uh, than, than normal banks and that, you know, they were helping to uh, uh, innovators to... Uh, to, to push forward with, with new products and services. That's great because if banks are not doing that, then, you know, somebody needs to do it. And if they're doing it without, those, those shadow banks are doing that without creating extra money and the only way that the money supply is increasing is either from from, from government spending 
or from banks issuing loans, and they're doing that in a very boring way, very controlled way, then that is the best of both worlds, isn't it? it well, and, and the third, the building societies in there as well, uh, so and have them mm. being exclusively for the housing market because the double in house prices is caused by bank lending uh, for mortgages. So, but yeah, I, 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 right. what, what we 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 have a system we should regulate. But the ideology of anti-regulation took over economics and took over policymakers as well. And what that means, we're given, I think banks and merchant banks in particular, a license to misbehave, which they've gleefully exploited. So it is very dangerous to uh, treat what is actually a privilege, the privilege of being a bank, as something which is a right uh, because you happen to own the bank. Uh, you only own the bank because the government they, they let you uh, become a registered registered bank. And it expected you to do that and, and in, in a responsible fashion to create the money needed for the society. But they don't do anything like responsibly. Um, and they're always arguing for less and less limitations on themselves. And, uh, you know, again, I come back to Keynes. When you leave the uh, investment decisions of a country to the activities of a casino, the job is likely to be all done. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, the final, the final point for today that the uh, but please comment on it. The, 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 the it seems that you know there are attempts to try and regulate the uh, the shadow banking sector. So the EU produced a report uh, on just that recently, but their whole focus was on uh, on how banks should limit their exposure to the shadow banking sector. So they isolated the concerns around liquidity problems, uh, interconnectivity and uh, spillovers. So, you know, the fact that there's interconnectivity between all these shadow banks, if one was to get in trouble, then lots of them would as well. Uh, excessive leverage. Uh, well, they're not they're not borrowing money that they don't have, as we've said. And then opaqueness. And this is the big thing, isn't it? No one really knows the complexity of it all. Basically, doesn't have a clue what's going on. So looked at all of that, identified that they were all problems in the shadow banking sector and that uh, there needs to be controls on how um, uh, banks limit their exposure to all of that. But obviously, their regulation is looking at, well, what this is what banks need to do to limit their exposure. Let's let the Wild West continue. Which, you know, maybe that's the sensible way forward, but that completely ignores the fact of what the shadow banking sector might be doing to the uh, poor man and woman in the street who might have money tied up in them, in whatever instruments it is that they're providing. Yeah, I mean, they 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 could play a creative role in the physical economy instead of play a creative role in the financial economy. And we let finance get to be far too dominant. Mm. And the main form of power comes out of those bank executives. And they're the ones politicians meet up with and discuss and regard as the most important people in their in their constituencies. So we, we have a you know, what I, we used to have what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. It still exists, of course. But what I see as the main danger today is what I call the politico finance complex. And because politicians are mixing with financial people all the time, they see them, they see the world through their eyes. And that means let allow us to do more speculation, more mergers and buybacks, buybacks, uh, share buybacks, uh, all the stuff which is actually destructive of the productive capacity of capitalism. Right, but it'd be very hard to tell a company, wouldn't it, that you can't do a share buyback if you feel like if you've got the, if you've got the money and uh, you can't invest it in any other way. 
and you feel like it's the best thing for your shareholders. I personally, I think it's a complete lack of imagination if a company has to do that. That means they can't expand and do better for their shareholders. They, the only thing they can do is buy back more of the mm. company. It's an admission of defeat. But if you if you want to do that, it's pretty hard to say that you can't do that, and you need somebody to facilitate that for you. So you can't say, well, no, we're not going to provide. You're going to have to do it yourself because we're going to uh, legislate against companies doing it for you. So I mean, it's. That is part of the problem, isn't it? Where do you draw the line on all of this? And then yeah. there's, there's also just the, the you know that complexity issue that was raised in that EU report. It is complicated. Hence, politicians tend to say, well, you're the bankers, you're the experts, so whatever they want goes because nobody really fully understands it. Isn't that part of the problem? Yeah, it is. I mean, we have public understanding and, and high-level intellectual and bureaucratic understanding of banking, which is completely wrong. That's one reason I built my Minsky software. By the way, I'd better mention anybody who's uh, any nerds out there. Minsky 3.0 has just been released. We're no longer in beta. We've now got a final production version. Um, but yeah, we, we, you have people who simply do not understand how banking itself works, who are running banking. And that is always a recipe for disaster. But do you feel like if, you know, if the intent was there, it would be possible to regulate shadow banking to say the certain things you just cannot do the certain rules we need to put in place in this in this banking sector you're not a you're not a bank as such but you're dealing with money and therefore these are the rules you have to follow oh we could we could say for example i'd like to i'd like to ban margin debt i think margin debt played an incredibly negative uh a role in society we should simply ban it and that would mean being banned it couldn't be done by merchant banks uh, right but, so if, but is- if that bank has got that money available that what do they you know that they can say to somebody well okay well we'll loan you this money because we have it what do they do with that money otherwise well they find that they find worthwhile businesses they find investors mm. rather than speculators this is what mm. they should be working with and that's yeah. uh, you know it's it's the failure to respect the physical economy that the financial sector drives that's led to a lot of the you know, ludicrous over financialization of society and diminishing of manufacturing in the West over the last 40 years. So I think that, you know, overall, I see finance as being a very destructive force on the development of, of certainly of Western, uh, Western economies. In the East, of course, they've facilitated the growth of the manufacturing capability of the third world. So, um, you know, they might be beneficial to the third world, but it's been pretty damaging to the first. Right. So uh, the answer is not nationalise it then. Is this the because it's too complicated? No, to no, not going nationalise. I'm saying realise you can have you rules. You regular can listeners, because Steve are... Keen does not want to nationalise the shadow banking. Something that's right. There's something definitely don't nationalise restaurants. Okay, that'd be that's a disaster. <laughs> Having experienced canteen food at university, I know how much better it is at yeah. the market developing it. But we've got to choose the right scale and and the right institutions to do it. And like in energy, I'd want to see the the. the production and distribution of energy being nationalised. But in banking, I'd like to see the responsibilities of shadow banks being enforced by rules on their on their behaviour uh, and particularly abolishing particularly destructive elements of their current activities like, uh, like margin lending and so on. Right, but there doesn't seem to be any appetite for that whatsoever, does there? I mean, as I say, you know, whenever anyone's looking at how you regulate the shadow banking sector like the EU, they're actually just looking at how banks should limit their exposure to it rather than actually uh, tackling the behaviour itself. So uh, that shows, you know, that either people don't understand it, it's politically seen as unimportant, perhaps, uh, or, uh, or or everyone's quite happy to see this risk uh, 
this wild west element of the the finance industry to, mm. to, to continue uh, perhaps because there's too many people making too much money out of it perhaps and they're powerful people mm. obviously I mean imagine if that I'm sure that's not the case but imagine if it was that might explain it uh, <laughs> good to talk Steve we'll catch you again next week thanks for that okay mate bye you know we should point out that Steve has done the last couple of podcasts while recovering from an operation to get rid of his prostate cancer so what a trooper basically uh, now with the coming financial crisis we're all going to have to be true particularly if you're running a business high inflation rising wages higher interest rates supply shortages how can businesses navigate through all of that and what should the government be doing to help that's next week on the debunking economics podcast with steve Keen. we'll see you then thanks for listening the debunking economics podcast Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.